In a few minutes, we will be in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 9 through 20, if you'd like to go ahead and find your way there. In May 1940, Hitler's forces marched against Holland, Belgium, Luxembourg, and France. By the end of the month, Holland, Belgium, and Luxembourg had capitulated to the Nazis. On June 14th, Paris fell. In a speech to the House of Commons four days later, Sir Winston Churchill addressed the nation in what has now become known as the finest hour speech, ending with these famous lines, Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will say, this was their finest hour. Like Alexander the Great, Oliver Cromwell, Napoleon Bonaparte, General Douglas MacArthur, and General George S. Patton, Sir Winston Churchill was a great leader of men in a time of crisis. And in his own way, so was Nehemiah. Having been granted permission to return to Jerusalem in a time of lethargy and loss of vision, Nehemiah galvanized the doom-laden inhabitants of the city into action. That did not stop until the task that he had been given authority to oversee was completed. If you are able, would you please stand with me out of respect of God's word as we read from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite served here, servants heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. And then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back, and I entered by the valley gate, and so returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were, do, who were to do the work. And then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins, which is with its gates burned, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant and Geshem the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us, despised us, and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? 
And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Let us pray. Father, thank you. This is your word. Speak, for your servants are listening. May it penetrate our hearts. May it penetrate our lives. May we know that we've been into the presence of the Lord this morning. Speak through your word to us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. God worked mightily through Nehemiah. He allowed Nehemiah to travel to Jerusalem. This journey was around 800 miles. It would have taken at least three months to complete it. It was a long and grueling journey. One in which perhaps many would have given up and quit before they had ever reached the people in need. However, Nehemiah committed himself to accomplish the work of the Lord. God's word says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Look at these words that Paul uses, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work. These words point us to work and to faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. There is a requirement here for a steward, and that is that he be found faithful. Faithful is something that should describe every single believer as faithful. We are all to be faithful, and the word faithfulness is defined as being steadfast in your affection or allegiance, being loyal to a cause or a person, being constant, loyal and persistent, trustworthy. And so if we are to apply that word to every believer, it would mean being the kind of Christian that God can trust. And so let me ask you this morning, before we get into the depth of this message, a question I want you to ask yourself this morning. Can God trust you? Can God trust you? And secondly, am I faithful? Ask yourself, am I faithful? Because This whole message that we see is Nehemiah preparing for the Lord's work. Are you prepared for the Lord's work? Are you faithful? Can God trust you? The first thing I want us to see this morning is the reception. The reception. Nehemiah has made this successful journey. He finally arrives at the place that he had been diligently praying for and as we will see nehemiah doesn't waste any time in getting to work i want to break this reception down into three main parts first the monetary provision secondly the military perfection or protection and thirdly the majestic power first let's see the monetary provision we see at the beginning of verse 9 that nehemiah gave the governors the king's letters we know that god had touched the heart of the king to provide Nehemiah the needs for the building project, a project that this size would amount to this massive expense, and the Jews of Jerusalem were poor. They would not have any resources in order to finance the project. 
However, King Artaxerxes had great wealth. In fact, he had an abundance of wealth, and he would have no trouble financing the project. And so God uses the money of a Persian king to finance the project. Actually, let me correct that. God used his own money that was happened to be in the hands of a Persian king to finance the project. We have a great God who can meet all of our needs on earth. Oh, that we would just know the depth of God's comprehension, the depth of His comprehension. God is omniscient, which is a big word meaning God knows everything. This means that God knows what we need before we even ask Him to fill that need. Scripture says, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask, Matthew 6, 8. Oh, that we would know the depth of His, of his comprehension. Oh, that we would know the depth of His compassion. The depth of His compassion. God not only knows what our needs are, but He's able to meet the need. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus Philippians 4.19 The depth of His compassion is put on display by by His sacrifice to meet our greatest need of all. To be the sacrifice for our sins and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of His cross Colossians 1.20 That we would know the depth of His comprehension the depth of His compassion lastly that we would know the depth of His capital God's not limited on resources. God used a widow who was down to her very last meal and worked through her to provide for her, her son and the prophet Elijah during a famine. When it says, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that spoke by Elijah. 1 Kings 17, 14-16. No matter how bad your circumstances may look, no matter how bleak things may appear, God has the power to help you through every single circumstance that you face. Do not hesitate to trust in God with all of your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. So there was the monetary provision, but there was also military protection military protection. The king did not want anything to happen to Nehemiah along the way, so he made sure that he had protection. This would have been an additional expense to the king. But he must have felt like it was a good investment. This was not just protection either, but it was also to attest to the authority of the king as being a part of the project. God will take care of his servants. I can't tell you how many times in my own life I have personally witnessed the protection of God in my life. Over and over and over again. One time when I was a a teenager, I was riding my bicycle with my buddy at nighttime, 
This was before I, I knew Christ as a believer, and I'm, I'm riding my bike, and uh, these dogs come running out after us, and I, do, I did what every normal teenager does when dogs chase them. I rode my bike faster, and I took off, and these dogs ran past my friend and chased after me. And one problem, I'm coming up to a stop sign, and I got a decision to make. Do I stop and let these dogs, like, chew me up? Or do I just keep on riding? And I went to blow through that stop sign, and here comes a car, and this car hit me dead on, on my bike. I flew up in the air. I landed on the side of the street. My wheel was bent almost in half, landed on my bike. The guy slammed on his brakes, turned, looked at me, saw I was still on my bike, and took off. Not a scratch on me. My bike was trashed. But I was not hurt. God protected me. There's, you will never convince me that he didn't protect me on that day. God sends protection. There was more than protection, Derek Kinder writes, to be gained from the military escort. It meant an arrival in style, impressively reinforcing the presentation of credentials to the neighboring governors and making very plain the change of royal policy. It may help to explain why Nehemiah's enemies resorted to bluff instead of force in their campaign against him because they understood he came with the blessing of the king. The entourage with Nehemiah would have spoken volumes before a word was ever spoken. Everyone knew that Nehemiah was arriving by the authority of the king. And so there's monetary provision. There's military perfection or protection and lastly there's majestic power majestic power doesn't take long for word to get out that old nehemiah was there to regather god's people there were enemies that were not excited and in fact they would seek to oppose him and do everything that they can to stop the work and god gave nehemiah wisdom and Discernment to see through the deception of these men. And when we look to God, He will guide us. We must be on guard against false teachers and against corrupt leaders who will do all they can to try to get us to compromise the truth and to join in them. Verse 10, it says that Nehemiah was, what he was doing displeased them greatly. Displeased them greatly. There's inner turmoil here for them because they were enemies of God and they hated the Jews. How dare someone think they're going to show up and seek the welfare of these Jews? It has been said when God plants a church, the devil sets up a chapel. When you get busy working for the Lord, you better anticipate spiritual warfare in your life because Satan will see to it that we have a battle on our hands. And we must not ignore or miss the primary teaching here that's that, that we see as these enemies come against Nehemiah. First, the consideration. Don't be impressed. Consider your enemies. Don't be impressed by the display of of the rich, God's word says, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. 
Do not desire his delicacies, for they are a deceptive food. Proverbs 23, 1 through 3. When someone's trying to impress you with their external delights, but they lack spiritual substance, refuse to be drawn into that deception. What they propose is based on human reasoning and has no scriptural substance whatsoever. We, have, we need to consider that. We, there's a challenge. The consideration, the challenge. We are challenged not to, not to put all of our efforts into being rich and cultivating worldly wisdom. It says, God's word again in Proverbs, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. As followers of Christ, we must learn contentment with what we have and to be godly in all our ways constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain but godliness with contentment is great gain first timothy 6 5 and 6 riches are elusive and they can disappear quickly they leave a person with nothing when when your eyes light on it it is gone for suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle towards heaven proverbs 23 5 that that those that chase after the riches of this world at all costs are setting themselves up for just heartache and ministry or misery. First Timothy 6, 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Having money is not evil, but the love of it will lead to corruption of yourself and of your character in order to obtain it. Lastly, the camouflage. These types of people that try to get you from following the Lord are smooth talkers who will use flattery to try to deceive you. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies. For he is like one who is inwardly calculating, eat and drink, and he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Proverbs 23, 6 and 7. They have a lot of charm. They will make their way seem so pleasant but it's all based on worldly wisdom, political correctness, secular humanism, and it glorifies the flesh. If they can't persuade those who are against them to join them, then they will attack. We must take our stand. We must put God first in all aspects of our life. We are not here to win some sort of popularity contest on earth, but you and I are here in order to please God. His word says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Luke 6, 26 and 27. We are involved as followers of Christ who desire to do the Lord's work. You and I should be desiring to accomplish the work of the Lord. And we will have spiritual conflict of cosmic proportions. Know the enemy. You have to know the enemy. You have to be ready to go to battle. We've seen the reception that he experienced. Now let's see the review of Nehemiah. Any good leader like Nehemiah must assess the need 
and develop some sort of plan to accomplish what needs to be done. He knew that in order to lead this project, he would need to see the situation firsthand and then work from there. He wasn't just planning for work, but he was planning for success. It's crucial that we understand that Nehemiah was not going to rush ahead of God in implementing a plan. So we see this midnight ride. The midnight ride. We see it in Nehemiah. He gets up in the middle of the night. It has been three days. Nehemiah decides he needs to see the ruins himself. I can't help but think that even though the city is in ruins, it had to be excited for Nehemiah because soon the workers are going to be busy rebuilding. Richard Swaim, in his book, Nehemiah, God's Builder, wrote this, Armed with royal authority, thrilled with a sense of Jehovah's overruling all obstacles, and recognizing the immensity of the task before him, Nehemiah set out on a survey. Nehemiah took with him a few select men to survey and assess the situation. Nehemiah only takes a few men. He was not out there broadcasting his movements and his plans to everyone. This is actually good leadership. It's a good leadership principle for us. A good leader will begin his plans by gathering a few select people that he can trust. These are the kinds of people that can be beneficial in getting the job done. Nehemiah knows that. The people that we select and take into our confidence should be trustworthy. They should be dependable. The wrong kind of people can cause more trouble than help. Trusting in a treacherous man in a time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips, Proverbs 25, 19 says. There's no more detriment to our work than, than workers. There's nothing more detrimental to our work than workers who are unfaithful. Solomon in that proverb talks about a bad tooth. You ever had a bad tooth? It doesn't feel very good. Using this expressive imagery to get his point across. God gave us teeth so we can chew our food. And when we have a bad tooth or a broken tooth, it hinders eating. You can't chew on a steak with a bad tooth. You may be able to have a bowl of soup, but who wants soup? Like if you have your choice, here's a nice bowl of soup and here's a ribeye. Okay, what do you, you want the ribeye, at least I want the ribeye, maybe some of you want want the soup, but I want the steak, and if you have a bad tooth, you can't eat the steak, you try to eat the steak with a broken tooth, and it causes you pain and discomfort, that broken tooth is a hindrance, not a help, and that's what, that's what the proverb is saying, the same is true if you have a foot that's out of joint, if there's a, a person with a dislocated foot, then you're not going to send them out on some sort of important errand, because Nothing good is going to come out of that. So a broken tooth and a broken foot are useless when it comes to getting the job done that needs to be done. They're going to cause tremendous problems and pain. If a leader puts his trust in an unfaithful person, then guess what? He's going to experience failure and heartache. A biblical leader needs to be sure that he can depend on people who are on his team. And so Nehemiah goes out at night. He takes a few trusted people with him, but he also didn't tell anyone. Now, some people wonder, why didn't he tell anyone? Why is there all this secrecy? But if we stop and think about it, temporarily keeping things to himself was a demonstration of wisdom on his part. 
Proverbs 22, 3, again, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. There are some things that are best kept to yourself. Revealing his plan too early would have given his enemies a head start in their efforts to oppose him. A little discretion can often keep us out of trouble. We must carefully plan our moves before we get people involved. Actually, planning our work is a biblical principle. Jesus taught that one should count the cost before they begin to build. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. A leader that fails to plan and count the cost will often become a laughingstock. Good success is dependent on following biblical principles. So by staying quiet with his intentions, then Nehemiah gains a better understanding of the work that's ahead of him. Formulates a plan before it even begins. If you do not know what you're talking about, then you try to tell other people your plan you're going to have a hard time because you're just going to confuse them. So we must understand what took place in this midnight ride. And then we see this meticulous review in verses 13 through 15. We have Nehemiah conducting this review of the city. He doesn't rush into the project. Instead, he patiently goes out. He carefully surveys the situation. Throughout the night, Nehemiah surveys the walls. He evaluates the needs. He finds the situation is just as Han and I had reported to him. Nehemiah tells us that the rubble and the ruin were so bad that he that there was no place for the animal that was under him to pass. So there was so much rubble that the animal that Nehemiah is riding couldn't even get through. The walls and the gates were just as Nebuchadnezzar's armies had left them. Nehemiah is doing this at night and often good leaders are awake while others are asleep. They work while others rest. They survey while others settle. And then we see the mindful reality in verse 16. Nehemiah makes it clear that the officials did not know where he went. The word officials is used in a general sense to speak of all the leaders. And at this point, he has not said a word to the leaders or the people in Jerusalem. Everyone's in the dark about the whole matter. Why? Because at this point, no one needed to know what God had called Nehemiah to do. They would find out when the right time came. They would find out when the right time came. Thirdly, I want us to notice... Nehemiah's rallying of the workers. Nehemiah's rallying of the workers. He surveys the ruins. He's made his plans. Now it's time to reveal his plans to the people. The trick is to get the people to think that the task of rebuilding the walls had really been their idea all along. Nehemiah needs a team to assist in the work. No leader can accomplish a great task without a team. They can't do it. It has been said that teamwork is what makes the team work. We can accomplish so much more as a team than anybody can on their own. Working together brings synergy 
Synergy is defined as the combined action of separate forces resulting in a greater effect than the sum of the individual entities. So two people can get more done than one person can when they're working alone. One farm horse can pull an average of six tons. But guess what a team of two farm horses can pull? You would think, like me, 12 tons. That's what you would think. But you'd be wrong. Two horses can pull 32 tons. This is synergy. It's teamwork. When God's people work together as a team, greater things get accomplished. The New Testament gives us an application to this. When it says in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is a passage about unity and the work of the local church. Paul says we are joined together. He's using this carpentry term here that speaks of carefully joining and placing every piece of lumber in its proper place. Each piece of wood has to be precisely cut and many times trimmed and sanded to get the right fit and finish. You not typically nail a door to the ceiling. People would think you were weird if you did that. It would be out of place. It would serve no purpose if you walked in and somebody nailed their door to the ceiling. That makes no sense. The door is fitted and it's trimmed to the opening where it goes. This is the picture that God uses of building the local church, which is us. Everyone who comes to Christ is taken by God and they are fitly framed in their proper place into the building. We are not just a bunch of brothers and sisters that are sharing a house together and we're like, oh, we're just sharing this house together. We are the habitation of God. In other words, God lives with us. God fits and places people into the local church where they can serve and He dwells with them. We are the dwelling place of God. That's what it says. That's what Ephesians 2 says. He dwells with us. That means that God dwells in this church. He is dwelling with us right now. Right where you're sitting. He's here. That's why it's everything we do is so important. Right? That's why the songs we sing are important. That's why the preaching of His Word is important. That's why when we come together, everything we do is important because God dwells with us. Right? But He talks about Nehemiah he, in rallying the workers. Notice He doesn't just say, all right, guys, let's get fired. It's not like one of these great speeches like, let's get fired up, you know, like they do before football. We are fired up. Let's get fired up. We are fired up. Okay, that's not what's going on, right? He gives a distressing calamity. Look at the beginning of verse 17. Look what he says. You see the trouble we are in? That's encouraging. It's like, look around. Look at this trouble we're in. He's holding nothing back. He identifies himself with the people. 
You see the trouble we are in. And he stresses the seriousness of the situation. We have to be realistic. We have to honestly assess the facts. Nehemiah is not using some sort of flowery language. He didn't cut the corners or dress it up. Like Paul in Corinth, he speaks plainly and powerfully. When Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Nehemiah identifies the problem. The people had forsaken their God, and now they're suffering the consequences of them forsaking God. They were suffering, and they were miserable. Thank God for people like Nehemiah. He's able to see past the misery even that they are in and see past the misery and the ruins and everything else of a, uh, to a people that would be one day restored and to a city that would be gloriously resurrected for God. This is why Nehemiah begins with the problems. Christians, we must be honest about the problems. One of the greatest dilemmas facing God's people today is pretending like there are no problems. And simply accepting the status quo. And just, ah, oh, we're just going to do everything like we've always done it. There are no problems. And settling for the status quo is one of the greatest roadblocks to change. And until we identify the problem as it is, we will never see our need to get involved and do anything about it. Nehemiah challenges the status quo. They'd been sitting there all this time doing nothing. Nehemiah doesn't settle for that. When it comes to rescuing the lost, helping the hurting, and building something for God, we are the solution to the problem. You and I are the solution. The people of God must see the need and get involved. First he says, we're in trouble. And then he says, Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned. The situation is desperate. Jerusalem, the city of God, is in ruins. This had to be a sorry sight. It was basically a wasteland. Everywhere you went, there were cinders. There were great fires and piles of stone and mortar from, from broken walls, the doom and gloom of the people. They were shameful and they sat by idly doing nothing. The work had stopped. Nebuchadnezzar left the place in a state of destruction with debris and rubbish everywhere. And Nehemiah knew something desperately needed to be done. And so, so he challenges the people to rise up and get busy with the work. The rest of the word, or the world, in effect, is laughing at Israel. With all their talk about being the people of God, and all their talk about how invincible they are, the invincibility of Jerusalem, and they had spent the last century and a half in servitude to foreign empires which subjected them to shame and brought their very existence and sense of identity to the brink of extinction. This is where Israel was at. And it's time to get busy. He says, look around. 
we got a problem, folks. And then he delivered a command. He uses one word at first. He says, come. Come. This is a wide open invitation for everyone to get involved. His call is not just to select group of specifically talented individuals, but to everyone. There's something for everyone to do when it comes to building for God. I hear people all the time, oh, I'm out of usefulness for God. No, you're not. Not until you're dead and in your grave. At that point, you're out of usefulness for God. There's something for everyone to do. If you want to be a good leader, then challenge others to get involved. Imagine a church where everyone is doing their part. That church would thrive for God. A pastor once said that his church was 100% willing when it came to the work of the church. He explained, 20% were willing to do all the work, and the other 80% were willing to let them. It's unfortunate, but that's how many churches operate. Sadly, the average in many churches is that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the congregation. That means that the average church is running at 20% efficiency. Some of you know I run daily, and one thing I try to improve on is running more efficiently, causing me to use less energy while I run. Imagine if, if your car ran at 20% efficiency, right? You'd have a problem with that. How would you like your heart to operate at 20% efficiency? If we're not willing to accept this 20% rule in other areas, why are we so willing to accept it in the church? It's tragic that when you have 20% of the members carrying the load for the whole congregation, you end up with a tired and worn out and overworked workforce. And the challenge is for everyone to get involved and build. We see a daring challenge. He delivers a command. We see a daring challenge. Nehemiah says, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. It's a big, bold challenge to rebuild the wall and hang the gates It's not a small task. The rebuilding had been attempted before, but it failed. It was never completed. The work ahead of them was greater than the workers resolved. They they not only face the enormity of the work, but they face the opposition of enemies. But there's still hope. Nehemiah is offering a fresh start. We need to see beyond the failure. They failed to complete the work the first time, but the God of second chances is giving them yet another Opportunity, And then we see a desirable consequence. He says that we may no longer suffer derision. It's a serious matter. The destruction of Jerusalem had brought mockery to Israel and to our God. It was a disgrace. And shameful. Their sin and their captivity had brought shame upon God. The pagans around them saw their God as one who could not sustain his people. Let me just say it's awful when God's people bring disgrace and shame upon the name of God. Alan Redpath says this, the fact that the city which had once been the center of God's dealing with his people lay in ruins was not merely a reproach to them. It was a reproach to the honor and to the name of their God. Nehemiah resorts to shame to motivate the people to get to work. What he's saying to the people is we become the laughing stock. But we're the people of God. Everybody's laughing at us. But we're supposed to be the people of God. 
Nehemiah clearly addresses the problem without sugarcoating. He stood up. He placed his finger on the heart of the matter. We must be willing to stand up and speak the truth. And when the people of God live a life of defeat, it brings shame on the name of God. We are representatives of the Almighty God. And the world around us will judge God by what they see in you and in I. And if we portray our God as some sort of small, little, wimpy God who is not in control of anything, then that is how they will see our God. But if we live a life of defeat, they will see God as one who is out of touch and who does not care about the ones that He supposedly loves. It's time for you and I to get busy building the church of God so that the world stands in awe of who our God is. But then we see a dependable companion. Look at verse 18. Nehemiah's confidence is in God. He's not being arrogant or prideful. He just says, God is with me. What the people needed to hear was that this was God's work. And he was God's man to lead the work. Notice in verse 17, he's not telling them to build the wall, but instead he's working with them. Nehemiah assures the people that God was with him and he is with them. And if we do not have God's hand on us, we might as well stay home. However, if God is with us, we can do great things. D.L. Moody said this, If God is your partner, make your plans big. You better know if God is with you or not. People need to know if God is at work in us or not. W.H. Griffith Thomas wrote this, Happy is the man whose eye is open to see the hand of God in everyday events. For to him, life always possesses a wonderful and true joy and glory. If we can't see God's hand in what we are doing, we will never, ever, ever accomplish the work. And finally, Nehemiah gave further assurance that the king had approved the work. Along with the king's approval came the provision of the soldiers to to accompany Nehemiah to Judah, as well as the provision of lumber to build the gates. This was a result of God moving in the king's heart to show favor to Nehemiah. And when you see God's great provision in your life, or you hear about it in someone else's life, it will encourage and inspire you to go forward in your life. And then we see a demonstrated commitment. They said, let us rise up and build. The rubber meets the road. Nothing is going to get done until people's, God's people rise up and do something. He delivers the challenge. They accept. The people catch Nehemiah's vision and burden. They wanted to be involved in the work. Workers are needed. And here we see God providing. Hudson Taylor said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. And that's exactly what's happening. God is simply su- supplying the workers to rise up to the task of rebuilding. If God is in it, He will bring it to fruition. It says they strengthened their hands for the good work. They not only accepted the challenge to prepare for the work, but they did it. Jesus made this point when he said, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The challenge for the church today is just as great as it was in Nehemiah's day. 
Leonard Ravenhill said that the tragedy of today is hell is burning while the church sleeps. We need to rise up and strengthen our hands for the good work of rebuilding. It's time to get busy. Lastly, I want to share with you repudiating the wicked. There are two things I want us to see under here. Then I'll wrap it up. As soon as Nehemiah revealed his plan to to rebuild, the enemies reared their ugly heads, right? They began to mock and scorn. Let's be clear. God's people who are committed and dedicated to God's work will face enemy opposition one way or another. We see the scorn of the sinful. Oh, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, leaders of the neighboring Persian provinces of Horan, Amnon, and Aram. These men were appointed to their positions by the king, and so they carried some authority with them. They don't like what's going on. Look at what it says. They did. They jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? These three Arab leaders did not like what Nehemiah and his team were planning. And they had no authority to stop it. So they did not have the authority to stop it. They resort to mockery and scorn. Their goal was to distract Nehemiah so the work would not happen. And this happens all the time. It's the same pattern today. When you're doing the work of God and and the enemy brings opposition, first he tries to discredit the work. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul when he was preaching, right? In Acts 13, 45. They try to discredit the work. They say that he's, that he's slandering, that he's a slanderer in Acts 13, 45. The devil uses the same tricks. He tries to discredit the work. Secondly, he tries to disrupt the work. The enemy does not give up so easily. Again, Paul had the same thing happen. False charges are brought against him and Acts 16, 19-21 they wanted Paul in jail so that they could keep on making money and rid this man who proclaimed the truth to him and third, the enemy would try to destroy the work that's what he resorts to he gets so desperate, he tries to destroy the work, Acts 14 Paul is stoned and dragged out of the city left for dead those who hate God will always try to destroy those who are identified with God Be ready for the enemy's tactics. You are working for the Lord. He will try to discredit. He will try to disrupt. And he'll finally try to destroy. Don't give him the victory. The world loves to mock the things of God and those dedicated to serving him. And some people are so concerned with what others think, they will allow the mockery to affect the decisions they make. The world will try to get you to bow down and embrace their doctrine and their lifestyle to be accepted by them. You don't need their acceptance. What we have in Jesus is far greater than anything this world can offer. Never compromise to gain acceptance. And then we see the surety of the servant. Verse 20. Then I replied to them. Nehemiah brings a straightforward response to the criticism. He doesn't stoop to their level. He doesn't go into a corner and pout. He's not filled with anxiety. He's not pacing back and forth wondering how he's going to deal with this. How we handle criticism is important. If you can't handle any criticism at all, then you probably do not ever want to be in leadership because you will be criticized all the time. A good leader realizes that the work is not about him. It's about God. That's exactly what Nehemiah says, right? The God of heaven will make us prosper. Nehemiah's faith in God is unwavering. The enemy's tactics have failed. Nehemiah is still laser-focused. 
God had prospered him this far, he's still going to prosper them. His servants will rise and build because God is in it, in it. Nehemiah assures his enemies that God's people are going to rise up and build. It makes absolutely no difference what the enemy does or, or, or anything else. The call remains the priority. And finally, look at how Nehemiah closes it. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Let the enemy clearly understand that the work we are engaged in belongs to God and to God's people. Jerusalem didn't belong to them. They had nothing to do with Jehovah God. This needs to be understood in our day. The Arab nations have no legal claim to the city of Jerusalem. Only the Jews have a legal, religious, and historical claim to Jerusalem. Let me close by saying this. This chapter is packed with action. It depicts Nehemiah as a model leader. Humble, trusting in God, willing to act, carefully planning his project, and wisely sharing his vision, as well as his faith with the leaders and the community of God's people. These are days of complacency. These are days when many are lethargic. These are days when many are self-satisfied and unconcerned. Far too many Christians have become spiritually lazy, apathetic, disinterested and passive some of us have even become drowsy sluggish paying little attention to the word of God to prayer and to worship we are living self-centered lives doing what we want when we want we disobey God's commands we never give a second thought to the righteousness he demands we are living sinful wicked and shameful lives breaking one commandment after another. The fact that we must live for Jesus Christ, faithfully worship him, worshiping Him and bearing strong testimony for Him seldom, if ever, crosses our minds today. If there's ever been a day when the ministry of exhortation and challenging God's people to follow Christ is needed, it's today. We, like Nehemiah and the citizens of Jerusalem, are called to build. We're not building a physical city, but the church. A church that's not made up of brick and mortar, but the tools of fervent prayer, powerful preaching, and zealous personal witnessing to those who do not know Jesus as Savior. We will encounter opposition. We will. But the God of heaven who gave success to me in Nehemiah, He is our God. And our God is sufficient, and it must act as a powerful motivator to us. Nehemiah saw the greatness of God. There is no task too difficult for the creator of heaven and earth who orchestrates everything by his omnipotent hand. We are but his tools. Our God can turn a sea into dry land. He can use a, cause a bush to burn and never burn up, and he will not burn balk at our enemies and those who stand against us and those who say you can't do that little children are sometimes taught that song right my God is so big so strong and so mighty there's nothing my God cannot do right I don't know if you ever learned that song I learned that song this theology is for us our God is so big so strong and so mighty there is nothing our God cannot do. And when God has a mind to do something, 
Nothing stands in God's way. And when Nehemiah faced opposition, he cried to the God of heaven that he would make them prosper. Oh, church, may we be prepared to go about the work of the Lord, crying to the God of heaven that he would make us prosper. May our prayers ascend to heaven, saying, God, make us prosper to do your work. There's a song by John Newton. Glorious things of thee are spoken. In part it says this, Savior, if of Zion city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. There's one lesson. In this section that that we should be taught. It's this. That we must trust in God more than we do. In matters where his will is made clear. We are not to focus on the forces of opposition that stand against you. No matter how great they may be. But we put our trust and confidence in the Lord. And if we trust in God. You have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. So I ask you, dear friend, are you trusting in God? Are you trusting in Him completely as a follower of Christ? What about those questions? that we ask can God trust you are you faithful perhaps this morning you'd say pastor I've not been faithful I've been doing my own thing may we all be like Nehemiah ready to do the work of the Lord that God can trust us and that we would be faithful maybe this message spoke to you in some way, shape, or form this morning. I'll be standing down front. If you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you. If you need to talk, I'll talk with you. However you feel you may need to respond this morning, I want to encourage you to do so. Let's close in prayer.